0: Hello, and welcome to a very special bonus box of Warhammer 40k's Grim History from the Beyond. I'm Zekthar. And I'm Yuxen. And today we'll be discussing the final Black Crusade of Abaddon the Despoiler, the 13th, where the planet of Cadia meets its grim destruction. Now, if you've been following along with my short boxes, you know we finished up at the beginning of the week with the Gothic War. And I
1: figured to begin the year, we would do something special. Indeed, Zektar, and what better way to do that than to tell the Imperium's greatest story of defeat in the 41st millennium, the fall of Cadia, and the opening of the Great Rift. Now, while this is humanity's greatest defeat since the Horus Heresy,
0: take heart, dear listeners, for the acts of heroism and glory will echo in the chambers
1: of the forge of the bastionic tempest for all of eternity. Quite so, Zekdar. Yet, for those listening, keep in mind this will probably be our longest box to date. We simply don't want to leave anything out. Righto,
0: brother. Before we get started, if you enjoy our boxes of the history of the Milky Way system, feel free to subscribe, comment, follow, and like. And if you really like our stuff, please join our membership squad on our YouTube channel, Tales of Ashiraka. With your support, we can continue to build and grow our boxes, as well as some
1: cool extra stuff for you guys to join. Indeed, Zectar, We need the support of you, our dear listeners, so we can continue to make a successful show that you all enjoy. We will also be opening up a shop for you guys to get some sweet swag. But until then, we need your support in the form of members. Now, if you're listening on Spotify, don't worry.
0: You can help as well. If you click the Support Podcast button on any of the descriptions on
1: Spotify, you can donate to our success, too. Well, I think that's enough grandstanding for us today. Since you have been covering all the earlier Black Crusades, Zekthar, why don't you start us off? (laughs) But of course, Uxen. Well, for
0: those of you who missed the Gothic War, we must start with the Black Fortresses that Abaddon acquired during that vicious crusade. Now, I won't get into the specifics of the Gothic War, nor any of Abaddon's other Black Crusades due to time, but I will give you the skinny on why the Gothic War's outcome is so important to this crusade,
1: as well as give you a little bit of an idea of who Abaddon actually is. Remember, folks, if you wish to know more about these crusades, check out the short foxes Zekthar did so eloquently over the past couple months.
0: Why, <laughs> thank you, Uxen. I didn't even know you listened to him. But anywho, during the Gothic War, while the Imperium was victorious, Abaddon acquired two Blackstone Fortresses, massive and ancient war machines that were capable of destroying entire planets. Now, as I have mentioned in the previous boxes, Abaddon has never thought of each of these previous Crusades as, well, Crusades. He has thought of all of them as what he calls the Long War. Well, Abaddon is violent by nature. It has no concept of morality. He does have a twisted sense of honor. I mean, he won't bat an eye when it comes to the death and destruction of entire worlds. Yet if you fight well against him, like Sigismund did in the first Black Crusade, more than likely he will treat your death with respect. Now, mind you, he will still kill you, but you at least will be honored in death instead of becoming some horrific ritual to gain power from the gods. You must also understand Abaddon is very patient. Remember, he is playing the long game. Time to him is almost irrelevant, thanks to living in the war, And he has the patience to simply wait and bite his time until the moment the strike is imminent. But the most important thing we have learned is Abaddon's a fan of subterfuge. His tactics are rarely straightforward, and even as his enemies are claiming their hollow victory, he has accomplished his goals and disappeared back into the eye. It seems time and time again that a spoiler uses the Empire's own arrogance to gain an advantage, and so we find the same thing at the end of the Gothic War. Though the Imperium announces triumphant victory, those who study history realize that Abaddon had actually gathered what he wanted, a couple Blackstone fortresses, as well as a couple Xenos artifacts that he has built into a terrifying weapon simply known as the Planet Killer. More about that later. <laughs> With these weapons, he's ready to make his attack on the Empire of Man, and as usual, he will start with smaller
1: pieces to soften up the ground he wishes to take before he wreathes the Cadian Gate in horrific war. As the end of M41 drew to a close, the first signs that Abaddon the Despoilers' long-feared 13th Black Crusade was imminent came in the form of numerous sightings of space hulks emerging from the warp around the Cadian Sector. Though some were boarded by the Detus Astardes and others destroyed by oral defenses, those that got by the Imperial blockade struck strategically important worlds and naval bases throughout the sector, crippling the region's naval forces. It was then that the dreaded chaos vessel of Nurgle, Plague Claw, appeared in the outer reaches of the Earthwart system, further spreading pestilence wherever it went. Famed Imperial Admiral Quorin would launch a hunt for the vessel, but soon encountered something far more terrible. Ambushed around the Fredex Dust Cloud, Quorin discovered to his horror that the Chaos Fleet was led by the dreaded Terminus Est, flagship of Typhus of the Death Guard, Herald of Nurgle. Quorin's fleet barely managed to survive the trap and escape, with Quarren out of the way, Typhus' plague fleet spread pestilence throughout the sector and the Physio medica were helpless to stop it. In what became known as the Plague of Unbelief, chaos spread throughout the sector as the fanatical sects rioted against Imperial authorities. To compound the Imperium's problems, plague zombies soon emerged from the bodies of those struck down by disease. The hive world of Bellus Corona in the Kripina sector was particularly affected by both the Plague of Unbelief and the infestation of plague zombies. And by the time Typhus' plague fleet arrived in the system, the world was completely unable to resist him. As chaos swept through many imperial worlds surrounding the Agrippina, Cadian, and Bellus Corona sectors, Cults preaching that the Imperium had forsaken the teachings of the Emperor grew in number. Imperial authorities crippled by plague could do little more to stop the ensuing chaos and mob rule that these cults unleashed. Mysterious yet brutal raiders began to strike without warning throughout these sectors, annihilating small settlements and agri-worlds. Meanwhile, astropaths and the Emperor's turret consistently produced dire predictions. On Cadia itself, the world's mysterious pylons erupted into life and vibrated intense psychic energy. The pylons appeared to be fighting to hold back the powers of the warp that were pouring from the Eye of Terror at an unprecedented level, but they were slowly destroying themselves in the process. So, things weren't going too well? Nope, but don't worry, it gets worse! Uh, oh. Greater disaster struck on the imperial world of Lothar, where a powerful figure arose among the raving cults and fanatics, proclaiming himself the voice of the emperor. The voice of the emperor's cults spread throughout nearby worlds, and he encouraged rebellion against imperial rule. Soon, vicious battles between the voice of the emperor's cults and the faithful followers of the ecclesiarchy erupted on the streets. Of worlds such as Barel, Yeor, Amistil, and Albaturn. Yet, try as they might, the officio assassinorum attempt to dispose of the voice of the Emperor proved unsuccessful. Um who was he? Why, he was the voice of the Emperor. <laughs> I got that, but no, I mean who was he really? Eh, don't know. But don't worry, his role in this debacle gets more confusing, but we'll get back to him later. Yeah, okay. While the voice was doing his whole thing, several systems away in the Scaris sector, soon reported enemy activity, as did the three subsectors located along the Cassandra Bar. Reports also came from Phonosar Prime, indicating an attack by warriors thought to be the Night Lord's Traitor Legion. The raid was timed to coincide with the local annual festival of the Three Maidens, a holy time for the population of Phonosaur Prime and its three moons, during which the adherents fasted and meditated upon their own weaknesses, the better to serve their lord, the god-emperor. Evidently, the attackers took advantage of the fact that most of the world's population were cloistered in prayer and descended upon the world's capital city of Medea, like a pack of feral predators upon his prey. Survivors reported that the enemy made planetfall on Medea's primary janitorium, destroying it and plunging the city into darkness before crippling the metropolis's reserve power facilities. With the city's power grid out of action, the traitors stalked the streets, killing wantonly as and when they saw fit. It was many solar hours before the planetary defense forces could be mobilized to face the threat, although many militia units mounted heroic improvised counterattacks, all to no avail. By the time the native defense forces were able to muster, the raiders had vanished into the darkness, leaving a death toll of many thousands in their wake. The world of Xerxia had also suffered at the hands of the enemy. A delegation from the Order of the Wounded Heart, an order militant of the Deptus Roritus, had arrived on the plant. Immediately after the Battle Sisters' arrival, It is reported that a small force of unidentified traitor marines had been defeated when they came to the aid of a chaos cult that the sisters were seeking to purge. It appears that the cult had chosen in their moment to call upon the traitor Astartes. With great care, hoping that the counterattack would wipe out the small force of battle sisters as they closed upon their target. It is a great credit to the sororities that they defeated both the cultists and the renegades, and a commendation was passed to their canonist superior. Sector high command also received garbled astropathic communications from forces in Helotis, Sarlax, Vagera, and Skyron system over the following 12 solar hours. Though no details were immediately confirmed, High Command feared the worst.
0: Sounds like the Cadian Gate is ripe for the picking. But,
1: um, what did happen to the voice of the Emperor? Well, he doesn't show up again until the 13th Black Crusade has already begun. But, real quick, just to finish him off, the Dark Angel sought out the shadowy heretic calling himself the Voice of the Emperor was operating on the world of Lelithar. Um, why? They figured he was a fallen angel. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, the Dark Angels launched a number of strikes against the figure, but on each occasion found that the pressures of constant attacks upon their hallowed ground in the Calvon system forced them to redeploy their forces. Each time the Dark Angels managed to close on the suspected location of The Voice, he somehow proved able to slip through their clutches, leaving behind taunting, heretical graffiti. The voice transmitted a number of all-channel vox casts throughout the war, making obscure references to the First Legion's earliest history, as well as making astonishing claims against the Primarch Lionel Johnson. The Dark Angels and the Unforgiven Successor Chapters vehemently rebutted these blasphemous broadcasts. The Dark Angels and the chapters of the Unforgiven relentlessly pursued this heretic and his followers and eventually captured him. As the voice lay languishing within the holds of one of their vessels, he somehow, though some as yet unidentified means, managed to effect his escape. So you're saying the Imperium never caught him? If you look into the Imperium's major historical documents, yes, they never caught him. But, if you get past the firewalls and the clearance levels of the Which I'm assuming you did. Of course, we will mm. discover that in 998.M41, a Black Templar strike cruiser, Ophidum Golf, assists a Dark Angel force in pursuit of the individual. After hard fighting, the Black Templars succeed in capturing him, although are later embroiled in a dispute with the Dark Angels during which the chapters briefly engage in battle. Although ultimately taken into custody by the Dark Angels, the robed captive mysteriously escaped and Ophidium Gulf is lost. At the behest of the Black Templars, the Inquisition is called upon to investigate. Results are pending after their disappearance of Inquisitor Archibald. So he did get away. That's what the... Dark angels would like you to believe. But no, apparently he was recaptured and now imprisoned in The Rock. But I think that is all we need to discuss on the man. Let's get back to the action in particular. Abaddon's arrival. (laughs) Agreed. With the worlds of the Cadian Gate all but on their knees the weight of the internal
0: strife and outbreak of the so-called Plague of Unbelief, Abaddon the Despoiler launched an invasion into the Emperor's realm and unleashed a power beyond imagining the scale of which had not been seen since the darkest days of the Horus Heresy. As part of their constant vigil around the Eye of Terror, highly trained units of Cadian Karskins often pushed into the outer reaches of that swirling maelstrom, desperate to find some indication of where the first blow would land in early 999.M41. Astropathic divinations pointed towards the blighted world of Earthwart. A world already taken by chaos, its population enslaved and sacrificed to the Dark Gods. Finding nothing alive on Earthwart, merely death and hideous plague zombies infected with the curse of unbelief, the Karskin prepared to withdraw. Suddenly, a frantic Vox communication from the Cadian's warships in orbit reported numerous vessels advancing Earthward from the Eye of Terror. The Karskin attempted to fall back to their dropships to return to their troop carriers. But it was already too late. The Imperial ships in orbit were either crippled or were forced to disengage and make best speed for Cadia. There was no escape for the Karskin, who were stranded on Earthward, as a massive vessel larger than the most gargantuan capital ship of the Imperium approached the doomed planet. The Planet Killer! Few were aware of the existence of this monstrous ship, for it had been thought lost in the Battle of Carlos two, during the Gothic War centuries earlier. Oblivious to their fate, the Stranded Cadians could do nothing as the incomprehensible power of the planet killer was unleashed in a devastating lance of energy that annihilated the blighted world they were trapped upon and reduced it to spinning pieces of molten rock floating in the void. As Wart died, collapsing in on itself, a Chaos War fleet composed of hundreds of warships and hulking troop transports Surged from the depths of the Eye of Terror, heralding the beginning of the Abaddon's despoilers' fearful 13th Black Crusade. A psychic death scream, more piercing than the Astronomicon itself, ripped through the ether from the doomed world of Earthwart. The Astro Pass and Ford Imperial Listening Post detected the emergence in a real space of the traitor war fleet. This whole fleet was setting a course for Cadia. Reports indicated the Plague Claw and the Terminus Est, along with a massive flotilla of plague holts re-emerged in the Sebaco Diablo system. Worse than this, unconfirmed reports claim that two Blackstone Fortresses accompanied the Chaos War fleet. Cadian Sector High Command found this last fact difficult to countenance. Though given the state of the Sector in the previous solar months, they could not discount the possibility that these ancient Xenos weapons still existed within the hands of the forces of Chaos. Imperial naval experts began plotting worlds likely to be chosen as targets for the planet-killer's attention. Intelligence gathered during the Gothic War indicated the planet-killer was a ponderous vessel, and its planet-cracking Armageddon gun took a great deal of time to power up and exert its effect upon the world once it was functional. The vessel was likely to be accompanied by a large fleet, which would be employed to subdue and distract the Imperium's own naval forces until the planet-killer could unleash its main weapon. All available Imperial naval assets had therefore been tasked with locating such a flotilla, and system defense pickets were put on high alert for any signs of an unusually large Chaos war fleet approaching one of their worlds. The wave of Abaddon's invasion soon broke across the sectors surrounding the Cadian Gate, and it became evident that the Inquisition fortress world of Nemesis Tessera was to be the main target of the first phase of Chaos' assaults. This was first realized when the arch enemy launched an assault on the Kaima Lomas system. Neris, the primary world of the system, was taken by enemy forces with contemptuous ease. In the Cadian High Command's best reckoning, Kaima Lomas had not been a target in its own right, but had been taken merely to secure the forces of Chaos's line of communication along the Rolk conduit. Having crushed Kaima Lomas, Abaddon's forces dispersed as they entered the Kensy Gulf with splinter forces separating to assault the worlds of Overus Gulag, where no command communications had been received in over a solar month. The voyage across the Kenzie Gulf to Nemesis Tessera was accomplished with alarming speed, with all elements of the chaotic fleet translating into the target system within a solar week of one, another, a feat of astro-navigation through the warp that the Navis nobiliti, suggested that the Cadian High Command would only be possible at the aid of the darkest of sorcerous arts. While the enemy had chosen an inquisitorial fortress world like Nemesis Tessera, as the initial target for its assault remained a mystery, Cadian Sector High Command's best guess was that the system was chosen out of sheer hatred for the potent agents of the Golden Throne. <clears throat> Honestly, that just simply means they have, they have no idea. <laughs> they really don't know Abaddon. But anyways... Uh, The forces of the arch enemy regarded the destruction of nemesis Tessera as of the utmost importance was evident from the sector high command's observations and from intercepted communications. The forces of the arch enemy invested an unusual amount of its resources in this assault. After the forces of chaos made their landings, it appeared that the Inquisition's fortress might be able to hold. Yet, Cadian High Command could only speculate that the icy surface of that grim world must have been infested with millions of traitors and heretics who had made plan to fall upon it. They estimated that those who did not fall to Nemesis Tessera's inhospitable climate would soon be hunted down and exterminated by the blessed agents of the Inquisition. But soon the Segmentum High Command came to realize that the assault on Nemesis Tessera had been but a prelude to the even greater storm that was about to engulf the Cadian Sector. Soon the skies above the worlds of the Imperium and the Segmentum Obscurus turned black with innumerable dropcraft as the dread forces of chaos began their invasion. The planet-killer itself, Abaddon's flagship, drifted ever closer to the Cadian system. Terrible, mighty chaos space marines trod the surface of worlds they had not set foot upon for ten millennia, and their hatred and thirst for vengeance truly knew no bounds. The Imperial Navy For long solar weeks, forced to fight, a desperate hold action against the seemingly endless waves of chaotic vessels was eventually reinforced. With their orbital defenses already breached and the fleet forced into withdrawal, world after world in the Cadian Sector became under attack. Initially, the Imperial forces held, even throwing the enemy back at Belisar, Becaria, Vigilantum, and especially Xercia and Cantreal. Yet the enemy soon found their weak points throwing countless thousands of lowborn filth at the Imperial forces so that the Chaos Armada's real masters, the traitor marines, could exploit them. The Chaos Fleets continued their inexplorable advance upon Cadia, only stopping to allow the Blackstone Fortress to scour Demios Binary to a barren rock. Lightning arcs of the incandescent energies raised the planet's surface bare, killing millions of Imperial servants and destroying every structure in a matter of solar hours. Chaos vessels quickly overwhelmed the orbital defenses of the Solar Meritus and the outermost planets of the Cadian system. And hundreds of dropships carrying the Trader Guard's regiments and now the infamous Volscani Cataphracts descended to the surface, attacking the mining outposts and capturing the valuable ore refineries from the defending units of the 23rd Cadian Regiment. The Trader Forces established a forward base of operation on Solar Meritaris, from which to launch attacks throughout the system. Yet, while all this was taking place, Abaddon continued forward for the prize he wished the most, the fortress world of Cadia. Now, brother, I think we should stop here for a second before we start with the actual invasion of Cadia to discuss the broader spectrum of what is going on in the Milky Way system. What do you mean? Well, before we get into the fall of Cadia, I figure we should explain the other events that are taking place in the galaxy, because it explains why the Imperium of Man cannot supply the Cadians with even more forces. Now, don't get me wrong, they do send quite a bit to Cadia. But they could have sent so much more, except for a lot of
1: other things are going on. For example, uh, the Greenskins begin to muster all over the galaxy. and Oh, excuse me, Zektar. You mind if I talk about this? As you know, the orcs are my favorite race in the galaxy. (laughs)
0: You know, I figured you might ask that.
1: Uh, Very well. Uh, The stage is yours, good sir. Well, at this current time, the forces of chaos overwhelming every Imperial world within the vicinity of the Eye of Terror, a large force of orcs took advantage of the state of anarchy threatening many star systems and launched an all-out attack upon the worlds of the Scar Sector. This so-called Green Crusade was remarkably well-coordinated for an orc invasion, and soon succeeded in grinding down the defenses of the several imperial worlds, notably Leth-11. The Black Templars' chapter diverted a number of fighting companies to oppose them, lest they gather into a fully-fledged war. While they could not expunge the orcs from the Sector, They were able to hold them at bay for a time, causing their mischief to be minimal to the rest of the worlds around the Sector. While this was a minor win for the Imperium, the fine folks of the Scar Sector would definitely disagree. The orcs continued putting intolerable pressure on a number of worlds in the Scar Sector, notably Leth II and Mordex Prime. The magi biologists of the Deptus Mechanicus believed these foul creatures to be working alongside Abaddon the Despoiler to further their own ends, though they did not consider it to be a true alliance as such. More likely, the orcs were taking advantage of the opportunity provided by the Despoiler's invasion to launch new attacks against the distracted Imperial targets. The situation on these worlds was grim indeed. In particular, Mordex Prime could not be allowed to fall into the Greenskin's hands, for it was a forge world of prodigious output, and its loss would damage the Imperium's war effort. More to the point, the Imperial forces dreaded the monstrosities the Orcs might turn the production lines of Ordex Prime to creating. Fifteen Imperial Guard Army groups and five legions of cybernetic mechanicus Scatari troops continued to hold Mardex Prime, yet clearly such a large body of men was insufficient to stem the green tide engulfing the Forge world. The segmentum Obscurus High Command drew up the plans to send a further 35 to 40 regiments of the Imperial Guard to the world, drawn from the regional reserve. To help bolster Mordex Prime's defenses. Yet the Orcs had set their sights upon capturing Mordex Prime, broadcasting their designs for the plants that they referred to as Mordaka Prime on every Imperial channel. Were it not for the fact that Mordax Prime was the sovereign preserve of the Deptus Mechanicus, Imperial High Command seriously considered petitioning the Inquisition for an exterminatus against the world before its vast resources fell to the enemy. As of now, the Green Crusade is holding the planets Leth-11 and Mordax, as well as most of Imbrium and Ulans. Gudrun and Nisa Stromolo are on the brink of anarchy, and only the intervention of Black Templars and Salamanders could prevent the orcs from claiming Thracian Primaris, and Enur Delta. The overall situation in the Scaris Sector is grim, and there seems to be no halt to the green tide. Well, I think I've discussed the orcs enough, but tell me, brother, what were the other Xenos of the Milky Way doing during this time? That's actually quite interesting, but where do you want me to begin?
0: How about I'm uh, Sure. Um, just keep in mind the Dracarys simply carry on doing their terrible things in the galaxy, so we won't go too much into them. Just know they continue to take slaves and be a minor hassle to mankind. What I find more interesting, though, is the Eldari. You see, the ever-elusive ships of the Eldari have been sighted by the crews of many Imperial vessels, and by troopers on the ground, across at least a dozen sectors. In the depths of interstellar space, these Xenos warships reportedly intervened in battles between the Imperial Navy and the Chaos Invaders, on occasion providing aid to Imperial warships and allowing them time to escape when overwhelmed, but at other times attacking them without provocation. While the Aldari are a fractured race, it seems to me that most of them realized the gravity of what was taking place here, and most of the craft worlds began to assist the sires of mankind. In fact, if you listen to our Vox called the Ultramar Campaign, a specific group of Eldar even aids with the resurrection of Rebute Gilliman himself. Now, the other races were not so kind to the Empire, yet one Xenos I must mention has a unique perspective on the plights of man during this time, and that would be the Immortal Necrons. Due to the activities of Abaddon and the forces of chaos, the Necrons had begun to awaken on the Sentinel Worlds. You see, the Necrons are known to be very antithesis of the warp, stirred into activity by its waxing power. The Necrons' nature compels them to oppose the warp in all of its forms. And for all intents and purposes, this adversarial posture could be considered in human terms an utter loathing for chaos. Now, this goes back to the War in Heaven, where the Old Ones and their allies relied heavily on the warp against the Catan and their Necron slaves. Chaos represents the greatest peril for the Imperium. Yet mankind paradoxically relied on the Warp for interstellar travel, communication, and much more. The Necrons, however, received no such benefits from the Warp. They had no psychers to draw upon the Immaterium. While their highly advanced technology provided them with more power over material universe that rivaled the abilities of the strongest psychers, Now, I must say, this is one of the reasons why I actually like the Necrons. Their utter contempt for warp
1: and wizards. Agreed. And yet, their technology is so advanced, it seems like magic. (laughs) Indeed, Uxen. The thing I find most interesting about this is that while
0: they are as old as the Eldari, their technology is far more advanced. While the Eldari use their
1: intelligence to become, well, space wizards. That is very interesting, Zektar. But I hate to say it. We don't have time to discuss such things this time. Remember, we have a schedule to keep. <sighs>
0: of course, you're you're right, Yuxin. Anyways, like I was saying, in practical terms, this means that the Imperium could expect the newly awakened Xenos to oppose the forces of chaos. However, this did not mean the Imperial forces could or should treat them as allies, even in the loosest sense, for this ancient race had a perplexing view of humanity far too alien for humanity to understand. Other than most of the time, Necrons did view humanity as primitive interlopers within the rightful territory of their ancient empire. Think grumpy old man being woken up by kids playing in his yard. But instead of giving him a broom to shoo off the kids, give him a gun that disintegrates things to a molecular level, and you kind of get the picture. Uh, Needless to say, Lord Castellan Creed Immediately enacted orders for all Imperial forces to stay clear of the Xenos race and to allow them to engage the forces of chaos wherever and whenever it was their intention to do so. However, the Imperial forces were not under any circumstances to render aid to these Xenos, for to do so would be to the ultimate harm of mankind. The Imperium would tolerate the Necron's presence in Imperial space only so long as expedience dictated. These ancient undying Xenos might be the enemy of humanity's enemy, but that did not make them the Imperium's friend. Now, while the Necrons could be seen as a quasi-allies, the Tower most
1: definitely not. Uh, pardon me, brother. Uh, yes? Yeah, I've mentioned Castellan Creed a few times, I thought we should give a little background on the man. He is, after all, probably the greatest hero in this story. Uh, sure, why not? I mean, <laughs> this place is as good as any. Uh, very well, sir. Tell us about Creed. Sarkar E. Creed was the 50 year old Astra Militarum Lord General, Lord Castellan, and Supreme Commander of all the Imperial forces assigned to his homeworld of Cadia, as well as the Imperial Commander and Governor Primus of the Crucial Fortress World, and the Regimental Commander of the 8th Cadian. The Lord Castellan's own. Although being an older man by the time of the 13th Black Crusade, don't let this fool you. He is a bear of a man, maybe not the tallest, but stocky and strong. A long scar runs from his forehead across his right eye, and the smell of fine tobacco usually arrives before he does, because he has a penchant for good cigars. His face is made of granite. Grim determination set in stone, yet wrinkles have formed due to the sly smile he will occasionally crack when he finds something amusing, fitting, or when he's winning. Yet he wasn't always like this, for Ursachar E. Creed was discovered as a young, orphaned boy in the burning ruins of kassar by soldiers of the 8th Cadian Regiment following the horrors of a chaos attack upon Cadia. Clutching only a service pistol and a tattered copy of De Gloria Macarius, that hard-eyed boy refused to speak of the atrocities he had witnessed at the time, and even now almost never speaks of it. However, the horrors he had witnessed had not dimmed his faith in the emperor of mankind, and had also honed him into a vicious and determined fighter. The 8th Kadian Regiment was impressed by the child, and he was then raised by members of the regiment, where he learned all the arts of war from an early age. He quickly became an excellent soldier and was drafted into the Cadian White Shields Corps, a dedicated and often suicidal youth force that supplemented the Cadian Planetary Defense Forces. From a young age, Creed excelled as both soldier and tactician. Rising swiftly through the White Shield's ranks to earn a command of his own, this is where he met Jaron Kell, and the two quickly formed a lifelong bond of friendship. This stocky and intense young warrior possessed an intuitive grasp of strategy and was a natural leader. From squad-level decisions to exercises with vast regiments of military might, Creed displayed a genius that some whispered echoed that of Macarius himself. Blistering assaults, devious traps, and impenetrable defenses were Creed's trademarks. And within three solar decades, the ragged orphan boy had earned acclaim as Cadia's greatest living commander. Only the strict structure of rank and privilege that governs the militarized society of Cadia now held Creed's meteoric career in check. By the end of the five-year-long Crusite Crusade, Creed had become a captain of the Cadian Shock Troops, and Kell was his color sergeant. Soon, reaching the rank of Lord General, in action after action, he proved himself as nearly flawless tactician and strategist. After not only resisting, but utterly destroying an Asuriani attack on the world of Arendt in 992.0, M41, Creed became the most successful living Cadian commander of his time, and the only thing preventing his rank from further progression into the rarefied heights of the Imperial Military was his humble, or rather unknown, birth. In 999.M41, Creed was raised to the rank of Lord Castellan after a successful plot to assassinate the Cadian governor Primus. Maris Porelska, and much of his high command was carried out at the Battle of Tyrock Fields during the early stages of the 13th Black Crusade by the traitorous Volscani Cataphract Regiments of the Astra Militarum. Creed rallied the survivors and gathered together a force strong enough to utterly defeat the traitors and rescue the body of the governor from desecration. But the damage had been done the governor primus was dead his body decapitated while governor secundus carwin his lieutenant and successor was feared lost as well the assault had been at least partially successful in decapitating the cadian leadership cadia had always had two planetary governors a primus and a secundus so that if one was slain in an assault by the arch enemy the other could continue to rule with no loss of continuity, but of the survivors among the Cadia's leadership, none were willing or capable enough to take up the burden. At the same time, they had little use for Creed, whose outsider status seemed to preclude him from assuming the mantle of leadership. It was then that Commissar Aldrad, the Prefectus's agent in the 8th Cadian, stepped forth to nominate Creed to serve as the new Cadian Governor Primus for his valiant efforts to turn back the traitors and unite the demoralized Cadian forces in this time of terrible trial. The War Master Reese accepted the nomination and offered Creed the office of the Governor Primus, but Creed refused. Instead, he demanded to be named Cadia's Lord Castellan, a special rank only granted in times of emergency which grant him full command of all planetary defense forces and Astramilitarum troops on the planet for life or until the crisis had passed. The War Master agreed, and Creed immediately set about preparing Cadia to meet the terrible onslaught of the forces of Chaos to come. <laughs> that was a good thing, too. With Creed at the helm, they actually almost won. <sighs> True. But remember, brother... Almost only works in horseshoes and hand grenades.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Yet yeah, Perhaps I can carry on with what the Tau are up to? Unless you have more to discuss when it comes to Creed. I mean, he is pretty important in this story.
1: Nope, I think I covered it. To explain any more would be getting ahead of ourselves. Very well, what are the Tau up to in the 13th Black Crusade?
0: Well... With the Imperium committing more and more resources towards the defense of the Cadian Gate after 997.M41, reports from the eastern fringe of the Ultima Segmentum suggested the Tau Empire was using this time when the Imperium's eyes were elsewhere to strengthen its defenses, and even enlarge its own domain in what the Tau called the Third Sphere of Expansion. Though Xenos had yet to threaten Imperial worlds at this time, and were largely expanding into uncontested wilderness space, Imperial strategoses kept one wary eye on the Tau Empire, lest they used this time of conflict and uncertainty to their own advantage, to the eternal cost of the Imperium. The Imperium's commanders were right to be worried. In 999.M41, the Tau initiated a major military campaign to seize Imperial territory in the eastern fringe that would coincide with the 13th Black Crusade and become known as the Zeist Campaign. Now, we don't have time to go into this campaign, but perhaps I will do a short vox on the matter this month while we were talking about the strange race known as the Tau. But for now, just know that the Tau during this time took advantage of the destruction of the 13th Black Crusade to rapidly expand their territory. The Imperium responded with the dispatch of several units drawn from the chapters of the Adeptus Astardes to the Zeist Sector to blunt the Tau offensive. With the victory of the Astartes in destroying the last major Tau Ford logistical base in the sector at the world of Agura, the Zeiss campaign marked the end of the third sphere expansion, with the Tau Empire having grown to 133% of its prior size. Unfortunately for the Imperium, though the Space Marines had won the war and stopped the Tau seizure of human territory, it was not possible to sanction a retaliatory thrust into Tau held space, as the individual Space Marine forces were required elsewhere in the galaxy to hold the line against the forces of chaos
1: during the height of the 13th Black Crusade. All right, brother. I know you saved the worst for last. What were the Tyranid up to?
0: Um, ironically, Not much, which is probably a very good thing. If a high fleet had been on the march, who knows what would happen to the Imperium. More than likely, Abaddon would have been rolling in on Holy Terra to find it swarming with terrifying bugs. But speaking of chaos, we know what the Black Legion was up to, along with Nurgle's boys and and the um, ah, Night Terrors. No, what do we call them? Night Lords. The Night Lords. Thank you. Thank you, (laughs) Yucin. But what were the other breeds of chaos up to? Surely they were not all attacking
1: Cadian space, were they? Well, during the 13th Black Crusade, Erbus led an army of word bearers across the Cadian sector. I hate They sacrificed millions of human captives to some a vast army of demons to assault the Imperial forces at the Cadian gate across the rest of the sector. It, is, is, is that all they did? Well, what else did you want me to say? Erebus and his ilk are truly a burden on well everyone. Why in all the realms would you want me to go more into them? You know, you got you got a fair point
0: there, Yuxin. I, I hate that guy. Erebus, he's terrible. He's even worse than Lorgar, which is saying something. Because Lorgar is kind of up there. <laughs> but
1: uh um, Oh, wait a minute, what about Zinch's boys, the Thousand Sons? Were they up to something? Oh, well, that is far more interesting. They break into the webways, and Librarian Ahreman is trying to find the Black Library. Unfortunately, Ooh. while it's interesting, mm-hmm. it has very little to do with the 13th Black Crusade other than taking place during the time of the Black Crusade. Ah.
0: Oh, but... That does remind me. Now, folks, keep in mind, lots of other things were happening in the Empire. I mean, remember, it is it is quite large. <laughs> Invasive species of unknown Xenos attacked from the fringes. Pirates raided supply ships. And chaos cults and gene stealers sprouted up like weeds across the galaxy. Even though we cannot cover all of this because it's just simply too large, I did pull up a couple of battles that I thought were fairly memorable. Um, perhaps, Uxin,
1: uh, you would like to start with the Battle of Kassar-Holm? Certainly. The forces of Chaos continued to hit the Imperial forces hard across the entire region surrounding the Eye of Terror. The fortress world of Kassar-Holm, one of the outer planets of the Cadia system, had borne the brunt of the chaotic ground assault on Cadia over the number of solar days with wave after wave of frenzied mutants assaulting the walls of the fortress world's capital city. Fifteen regiments of Cadian shock troops manned the defenses there, and an entire legion of Adeptus Titanicus was deployed. Were it only the seemingly endless hordes of ill-disciplined mutants attacking Kaiserholm's capital, the Imperial defenders might have been able to contain them there. But, the assaults were led by none other than the traitorous starters of the Black Legion. Now, the Black Legionaries were quite content in using the thousands of mutants to crash against the khazar homes capital defenses in order to wear down and deplete their material stores through sheer attrition. Though each wave was repulsed by the defenders, it was at a high cost. Just when the attackers were sent once more into an undisciplined route, the black legionaries launched their own attack. These attacks cost the imperial defenders dear, though fortunately they were unable to pierce the defenders' lines. Yet with each successful wave, they were only able to kill a handful of the enemy, while the casualties the defenders sustained were intolerably high. It was at this point that Lord Castellan Usakar, E. Creed, moved his headquarters from Cadia to Kasserholm to counter the crisis rapidly developing there, believing that his inspiring presence would make the same difference as the addition of of several regiments. He led a bold counterattack at the head of the Cadian 8th Regiment against the Forces of Chaos, sallying forth with the Imperial forces once the latest wave of mutants had received, and struck at the Black Legion before the cast Space own assault could develop. The resounding success of the counterattack raised morale so much that upon Creed's return, the entire length of the Eastern Wall erupted with cheers of many thousands of men. Despite Creed's magnificent actions, it was to be outdone by a group that was not only an unknown force, but one that, to those who even knew about him, was thought to have been lost forever. Um, um, who, who might that be? It was at the next assault on the Eastern Wall. Oh, no, 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 hang on, hang on wait a minute, a minute. Who, who are we talking about here? Just wait, and you'll find out shortly. Uh, now, it was at the height of the next assault of the mutants upon the Eastern Wall of the Kassar Homes, capital city's primary fortress. At the moment when it appeared, the Black Legion would force a breach. Wait, I, mean, I got it. It's the Legion of the Damned, isn't it? I knew those guys would show up eventually, right? No, it's not. Oh. Now, if you'll just let me finish. Uh,
0: uh, okay, sorry. Um, Please continue, sir.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anyways, at the moment when it appeared as if... The Black Legion would force a breach. The once thought lost Fair Legion, the 13th Great Company of Space Wolves, appeared from behind the traitor lines and inflicted a crushing defeat upon them. Aha! Uh-huh. Those guys! Yes. Both the Chaos Attackers and the Imperial Defenders heard with their own ears the animalistic howls emitted by these barbaric warriors even though many were at their stations from a distance from the fighting. The sound chilled everyone who heard it to the core. Fortunately, the effect upon the enemy was greater still. The vile mutants fled first, terrifying running amuck every which way. Their Black Legion masters attempted to forestall the rout, firing upon the mutants, in a vain attempt to render them more terrified of their master's retribution than they were of the 13th Company. But their efforts were wasted, and many legionnaires were trampled as the mutants stampeded from the walls. Soon, the black legionaries were themselves assaulted, and those not cut down from the rear were forced to quit the field, an event unheard of to date for the fierce chaos space marines of Abaddon's own traitor legion. The 13th Company's attack was over almost as soon as it began, and they soon withdrew, making no attempt to communicate with the other Imperial forces as they did so. Now, the wolves do show back up on Cadia, but perhaps, Zektar, you could give your accounts on the Battle of Medusa? <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Now, the Battle of Medusa has to do with one of the first founding chapters that we actually haven't talked about much, uh, the uh, um, Iron Hands, which are actually kind of an interesting chapter and we will have to look into them. But anyways, when the forces of Abaddon, the despoiler spilled forth from the Cadian gate, the Iron Hands space Marine chapter knew that their homeworld Medusa faced imminent invasion due to their close proximity to the eye of terror. And so the chapter scrambled to prepare their defenses Given that Medusa was the only world from which the Iron Hands recruited new brethren, they were forced to defend it above all other considerations. While it is known that two of the chapter's clan companies were deployed elsewhere in the defense of the region, the greater strength of the chapter was used in the defense of their homeworld. The largest battle in the defense of Medusa came when all ten of the gargantuan track fortresses of the Iron Hands clan companies faced the invading trader guardsmen of the Hrondi 13th Heavy Armored Regiment the geological unstable plains of Medusa played host to one of the largest armored clashes the galaxy has ever seen since the infamous battle of Talarn during the Horus Heresy, when over 10,000 Traitor tanks stormed towards the waiting Iron Hands fortresses. The ensuing battle raged for five solar days and five solar nights, as the traders closed within firing range of the Iron Hands mobile fortresses. When the Iron Hands opened fire, it is said that over a hundred tanks were destroyed in the first volley. For each clan company commanded firepower equal to a Centurio Ordinatus of the Adeptus Mechanicus. On the fifth solar day, at the height of the battle, the traders broke through the Iron Hands lines. And an armored company of traders outflanked one of the chapter's mobile fortresses and fired shell after shell into it at nearly point-blank range. The Iron Hands responded by launching a furious counterattack spearheaded by assault squads armed with bombs, who leapt from the crenellated towers and the mobile fortresses to land atop the enemy tanks. Though many Astartes lost their lives in the attack, shot down by pentel-mounted weapons or ground beneath the enemy vehicle's armored tracks, their counterattack was successful in disabling and destroying the majority of the traitor armor and sending the rest into disorderly retreat. It was then that the Iron Hands launched an armored assault of their own, as whole formations of Predator Annihilator tanks disgorged from the mobile fortresses to run down and destroy the heretic tanks with ravening beams of las cannon fire. The Iron Hands managed to secure Medusa by the midpoint of the larger 13th Black Crusade campaign and were able to deploy several clan companies to the defense of the Cadian system, though they arrived too late to save Cadia from its fate. And an Iron Hand's naval task force
1: was dispatched to reinforce the naval world of Vigilantum. Interesting. And there are many more battles on other worlds just like this. But alas, we must press on and get back to Cadia. hmm
0: The forces of Chaos met the armies of man on Cadia for the first time when Lord Castellan Ursicark E. Creed led his Cadian 8th Regiment on an operation to hunt down and exterminate a group of Voskani cataphracts, who, unknown to the Cadian High Command, had escaped the chaos of the Tyroch fields and were attempting to link up with the elements of Abaddon's invasion force. The Lord Castellan had always been known as an officer who would fight at the front line with no hesitation whatsoever, leading his men and setting the standard for his junior officers. The Eighth Cadian brought the enemy to battle at Kassar Vassan, in the shadow of the Cadian pylon that dominated the Vasani moors. The battle was brief, yet vicious in intensity, and not a single traitor was allowed to escape with his worthless life. It later proved fortunate that Creed had wasted no time whatsoever in launching his assault, for the Chaos Space Marine Force, believed to be the vanguard of a larger Black Legion warband, caught up with him as dusk fell, necessitating a hasty withdrawal across the moors. It was said that the true test of a general was the ability to disengage in the face of a superior foe, and the 8th Cadian regrouped to head back out onto the Moors to face the Black Legion on more favorable terms. Now, following the evacuation and subsequent destruction of St. Josemaine's Hope, in order to deny the forces of the despoiler a forward staging point, the Imperial defenders initially rallied well, falling back in good order to key points in the Cadian system. Imperial morale was bolstered by a bold series of counterattacks, but these successes were to prove short-lived, and the despoiler had committed yet more of his diabolical forces to the Cadian system. With the forces of chaos now fully committed to the siege of Cadia, the belingered defenders could only pray help arrive soon, for all was lost. It soon did, though. The Cadian High Command received word that the fleets of the Iron Knights and the Imperial Fist Chapters of the Adeptus Astartes had established contact. Lord Castellan Creed was also in conference with the great wolf Logan Grimnaw of the Space Wolves Chapter, planning how best the space marines might be deployed. Though the Cadian Sector High Command held no authority over the Adeptus Astartes, Creed had indicated his support. For Grimnar, should he establish himself as the nominal head of the Space Marines chapters operating within the region. Captain Echion of the Patriarchs of Elixis, commander of the Ultramarines Honor Guard, a specialized company of the Ultramarines that had been stationed at Cadian Gate for many millennia, rotating officers and warriors from Ultramarine companies elsewhere, and also drawing from the Ultramarines' successor chapters, also voiced his support for this arrangement. Lastly, the Cadian High Command also received word from the Deptus Mechanicus Temple at Cacer Galan that the Ordo Reductor, consisting of ancient and venerated siege engines akin to the dreadnoughts of the Estates, was to reinforce the Cadian defenses there as well. Yet, the enemies were already on the planet, and the Imperium was sore pressed. Even worse, because the Cadian High Command continued to labor on analyzing the Traitor Legion's attacks, which was ordered by Lord Castellan himself, brought about a degree of conflict within the High Command. This was because the Supreme Grand Master, Ezreal, of the Dark Angels chapter, heard of this endeavor and had ordered it to cease, stating the actions of the traitor were the business of the Astades themselves and were no concerns to mortal units. Now, needless to say, Creed rejected these assertions as patently ridiculous under the circumstances of the current crisis, and Logan Grimnar agreed with him. As a result, Azrael soon withdrew what cooperation the Dark Angels have been preparing to offer.
1: What a haughty individual. No wonder nobody wants to work with the Dark Angels. I know. Wonder what the Lion thinks of this pretty blatant rejection of their duties as space brains.
0: That's a good point. Maybe we'll ask him now that he's awake. But uh, things were not going well on the planets known as the Cadian Gate. By this point in the conflict, on every world of the Cadian system, there was only war. Vigilantum was all but lost to the unholy servants of the ruinous powers. Though a small imperial rearguard, previously thought annihilated, held out, stubbornly defending the naval Taclogis facility. Solar Mariatus, too, was sorely pressed by the hordes of the despoiler, and the Cadian sector high command had ordered the world reinforced lest his output of munitions and other material essential to the ongoing war efforts be lost. A blow the belingered Imperial defenders could ill afford. With Imperial Navy reinforcements inbound, the defenders of Cadia had to hold out just a little while longer. Ursacar Creed had been hailed by many as the most able Imperial commander since the legendary Lord Solar Macarius. Yet many Imperial observers noted that his subcommanders had not proved themselves quite so capable. So sudden and mobile had Abaddon's invasion proved that many Imperial commanders at the star system and planetary level had simply been unable to coordinate their actions and were reacting to the enemy's attacks rather than dictating their own terms of battle. Creed had issued stern orders to his subordinates to take the initiative at a planetary level or fall to the enemy, for the choice was honestly that simple. The skies above war zones burned with the falling of orbital ordnance, and the chants of a billion lunatics resounded. The tread of mighty battle titans shook the earth, and Imperial Navy fighter craft screamed overhead. The last days of the conflict had come upon the Imperium of Man. The Imperial forces could only pray that no servant of the Emperor faltered in his duties to the master of mankind. For to do so was to surrender humanity itself on the internal pyre of damnation and ruin. The final stages of the 13th Black Crusade was fought across the Cadian, Agrippinia, Bellus Corona, Scarius, and Chinchere sectors of the Segmentum Obscurus. It wasn't long before worlds began to fall to the onslaught, and the world of Cadia itself began to be singled out. On Cadia, the strongholds of the Emperor fell one by one. The viceless and cadious lines of the battle buckled beneath the relentless hammering of uncounted enemy troops. The Imperial forces on Cadia had been engaged upon a mobile defense, with Lord Castellan Creed marshalling the Astra Militarum regiments under his command to meet each enemy and cut it off before an unstoppable assault developed. But such were the numbers of the archenemy's forces that this strategy quickly proved to be increasingly untenable, forcing the Cadian defenders onto the defensive as they began to fall back to Kasser Partox. An entire traitor Titan legion marched in line across the horizon, framed against the blazing sky as millions of tons of ordnance fell from orbit. Hordes of mutants swarmed under the Titan's feet, sacrificing themselves to the twisted god machines. Living artillery stalked the battlefield, spewing shells the size of tanks. The chanting of a million madmen could be heard from the ramparts of Kassir Gahir. But the Cadian 8th Regiment stood arrayed in companies across Kassiragir's parade ground, proud, courageous, and resolute. Honor writ large upon their faces of each and every trooper. The Lord Castellan knew he was consigning many within his beloved regiment to their inevitable deaths. Furthermore, the troopers knew it, and they were proud to know it. They cared not, for they would uphold the pride of the Lord Castellan's own, Cadia, and their sacred duty to the God-Emperor. That evening, the enemy launched their assault upon the citadel. It was presaged by a terrible, chilling wailing that bit deep into each man's sanity, but none wavered. Then a thunderous artillery barrage rained death and destruction upon the walls, but still the Eighth Cadian refused to falter. Then came the first waves, and the men and women of the Eighth Cadian opened fire upon them. A blazing wall of LAS fire sprang across the rapidly closing gap before the walls and the enemy fell by the thousands. Many exhausted their LAS gun charges in what seemed mere moments and reached for a second charge when the regimental standard bearer, Jaron Kell, bellowed the Castellans orders for every second company to stand down from the walls. The rear guard would assemble. And so the retreat in the Imperial forces towards Kassir-Partox began. Some 10 companies, had held to the last to allow the remaining 8th Cadian time to fall back. These brave 3,000 troops were to abandon their positions at the last possible moment. But something went wrong. They were encircled, cut off, and eventually overrun and captured. A solar day later, the Imperial forces learned of the fate of the men captured at Kassir-Gahir. They were ritually disemboweled before the Imperial position on the Vauclis line. The effect upon Imperial morale was utterly devastating, and it was all the commissars could do to contain the air of defeat that soon settled over many units. As the Battle of Cadia reached towards its climax, the will of its defenders hung on a knife's edge. Now, none of this would even be possible, and the planet of Cadia surely would have been overrun almost immediately if it was not for the brave men and women of the Imperial Navy. Millions of brave mortals, as well as thousands of Adeptus Astartes, fought through the void of space, ensuring the defenders
1: of the planets had a final chance. And to tell you all about it, here is Uxen. While the war continued to go badly upon the surface of many worlds in the Cadian system, in particular St. Josmain's Hope and Solar Mariatis, the war in space was fought more on the Imperium's terms. The Cadian system had been the focus of Abaddon's primary fleet actions, and the Imperium's fortunes there changed from day to day. The situation was highly fluid, and the chaotic naval forces found themselves stretched to exploit the victories they had won. Although the Imperial Navy's fleets could not hope to oppose the arch-enemy, In and around the orbital space of most of the worlds of the Cadian system, they continued to hold on to control of the inner system space lanes within the Cadian sector. The Imperium could not, under any circumstances, afford to let their guard waver, for it was upon one of these routes that they hoped to bring the planet killer to battle. To let it pass was too terrible a failure to contemplate. A fleet the size of which has not been seen since the end of the Gothic War, eight standard centuries earlier, had been dispatched from Cypramundi and arrived at Bellis Corona in preparation for a massed imperial counteroffensive into the Cadian Gate. The arrival of the vast armada allowed a brief reprieve for those who were continuously fighting from the beginning. The imperial forces were split into battle groups each tasked with bolstering the defenses in a specific sector and the segmentum obscurus. The regions around the Eye of Terror encompass many millions of cubic light years, and only by the concentrated application of resources in those areas in most desperate need could the Imperial Navy hope to make inroads and slow, stall, and eventually repel the chaos war fleets plaguing the region. During the latter stages of the campaign, when Abaddon's fleet was seen approaching the agri-world of Lortox, the Ultramarine's Honor Company distinguished itself with the bold spaceborne counter-assaults against Abaddon's fleet as the Planet Killer, closed with that Imperial world on the outskirts of the Crepina Sector. That action bought Lortox's planetary defense forces time to evacuate a significant portion of the population before the world was destroyed by Abaddon's horrific weapon of planetary destruction. The Ultramarines Honor Company managed to succeed in crippling the planet killer, but the massive vessel still had enough power to limp away. In the aftermath of the Lortox evacuations, the Ultramarines Honor Company redeployed to Cadia and the surrounding star systems, launching a series of operations to hinder Abaddon's forces as they assaulted the Imperial positions. These attacks included a series of highly successful boarding actions against the lumbering space hulks being used to transport vast hordes of arch-enemy troops to reinforce Abaddon's siege of Cadia. It was a fool's dream to hope the planet killer would be found before it was brought to bear upon the imperial forces. Without warning, it appeared in orbit over the world of Macaria, though many could scarcely believe it. The world was destroyed by the massive vessel. It was lost, and with it millions of loyal and faithful subjects of the emperor, dead at the hands of the despoiler and his despicable weapon. Utter dread now descended upon the Segmentum Obscurus High Command. Despite the success of the earlier solar weeks of the invasion, many had come to believe that this war might not be won in the short term, where at first the Imperial forces fought to repulse Abaddon's assault, to deny him footholds upon Imperial worlds. They now fought to keep him from overwhelming them entirely. This was a grim paradigm and one of the Imperial forces were not ready to accept. They believed Abaddon dare not destroy Cadia, as its pylons were reckoned intrinsically to the continued ability of the Cadian Gate, which he needed to move his forces deeper into the Imperium's space so that he could launch an assault upon Terra. So the Imperium would make its last stand upon Cadia and hold that world no matter the cost. Thank you, brother. But we do have to get back to
0: Planet Side for Cadia. I know you could speak of the mighty deeds of the Imperial Navy, but we gotta keep going. <clears throat> now the valiant Imperial Defenders of Cadia made their final stand upon the ramparts of Kassir Partox against the forces of chaos arrayed against them. A massive force of the arch enemy stood to assault the valiant imperial defenders. The fortress city was protected by a scant 23 regiments of the Cadian shock troops. Yet alongside the regiments of Cadia stood a host of units drawn from worlds near and far, such as the Novians, Gundronites, Mordens, Thracians, Jorans, and a thousand more. The battle brothers of the Adeptus Astartes were also counted amongst the Imperial defenders, including the Chapters of the Dark Angels. Dark Angels? I thought they left. Uh. They did. (laughs) Uh, Yet, they returned to aid the sector. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to cover that. Um, Perhaps another time. But, uh, where was I? Oh, yes. Along with the Dark Angels, there were obviously the Space Wolves, Ultramarines, Doom Eagles. There were also many other servants of the God Emperor present, including the Battle Sisters of the Adeptus Sorartis, the Mighty Grey Knights, scores of Inquisitors, the Siege Dreadnoughts of the Ordo Reductor, the mighty god machines of the Caliglia Titanica, and the Mechanicus's own cybernetic Scatari warriors. And amongst them all, the confessors of the Imperial Cult made their way, admonishing each and every man and woman to hold true to the Emperor.
1: Yippee. Yeah, I kind of wish they weren't there too. (laughs) But anyways... You unbelievers! You are the reason why the plague hit us. And now, look, you better be up to stuff this time. <laughs> if you're not, it's
0: your fault. Everybody dies. So get your yeah, together. together. <laughs> sorry, sorry. We, we do have to press on <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> um, But the Imperial Defenders numbers paled in comparison to those arrayed against them. Even from atop the mighty walls of the citadel, it was observed that not a single square meter of ground was not trodden upon by the enemy. It seemed as if every twisted denizen of the Eye of Terror had converged before the walls of Casir partox In the ensuing slaughter, the Imperials were forced to abandon Casir partox and retreat towards the caducadus Sea, where they hoped to make their final stand at Kasir galan With kasir partox fallen, The Imperial command and control structure was demolished. The Imperial retreat from Kassar Partox saw the most intense fighting of the 13th Black Crusade, with many thousands of lives given up so that the bulk of the Imperial forces might escape. The Imperial forces managed to make it to the Kaidukagos Sea, leaving behind thousands of dead, their bodies defiled by the blasphemous Chaos hordes. The Imperial ground forces fled aboard transport ships across the sea, forcing to abandon the bulk of their heavy equipment. One of the last groups to leave was the Ecclesiarchy Delegation, whose thousands of preachers had attended to the spiritual well-being of the Imperial forces throughout the fighting withdrawal from Partox. Some of these remained in the port, determined to preach the word of the Emperor until the very end, and their sonorous chants at times were said to have drowned out even the thunderous explosions of enemy artillery before they were all expunged from the earth. Good riddance to them. (laughs) anyways a company of space marines from the subjugators whose numbers had been so reduced during the participation in the defense of cadia so as to threaten the very survival of their chapter chose to also make a final stand there vowing to evacuate only when all else was lost Austrian militarium engineers planted
1: munitions at the heart of the port in order to ensure its destruction so
0: the it
1: sun was popping in my head is like Okay, just stand right here on this mine. (laughs) Yeah, I want all of you guys to stand on
0: mines when you die. (laughs) Blow everything up. That way you guys can do your thing and I can do my thing. All right, I'm getting on the boat. (laughs) Just don't move before I
1: get up there. (laughs) Yeah. Now... Excuse me, brother. But since you put me in charge of the void battles... Perhaps I could tell the next part. Hmm. It is a void battle, after all, and it explains how Creed and the defenders escaped their dark fate. For a time. Hmm. That's a good point, Uxen. Uh, Have at it. Yes, well, the Imperial fleet in orbit above Cadia's valiant Imperial defenders on the ground was also gathered for its final stand. Should they fail, the world of Cadia and all who stood upon it would be scoured away by the power of the warp. This had been Abaddon's plan all along, In launching the 13th Black Crusade, everything had led to this particular moment. Soon the battle in orbit was underway. The toll taken upon the Imperial's defenders was fearsome indeed, but... This desperate endeavor was worthy of the greatest of sacrifices, for failures meant that the Cadian Gate could lie open for Abaddon to launch his campaign against Terra and succeed where his master Horus had once failed. The details of the battle in orbit that ultimately saw the forces of chaos repulsed are difficult to piece together in the wake of the chaos caused by the Cadian High Command by the Imperial retreat from Casser Partox. Yet, from what we could piece together, Admiral Quarren, who commanded the Imperial fleet that defended Cadia, reported that the bulk of his fleet was destroyed, many vessels having paid the ultimate price to throw back the servants of the Dark Gods. But at the height of this battle, we found reports that a fleet of Necron vessels appeared as if from nowhere and assaulted both the Blackstone Fortress and the Chaos War fleet. Now, Standard Imperial records are a little sketchy on what takes place next, but I did some digging into some high-clearance stuff, and the Inquisition begrudgingly concur that, with the blindside attack from a massive Necron fleet on their flank, the Chaos fleet began to buckle. Taking advantage of this, Admiral Quarren pushed his advantage. Forcing the Blackstone Fortress to disengage from its approach on Cadia, and contact with it was lost soon after as it fled the Cadia system. The remaining Chaos vessels followed it and also withdrew from the system. Was truly vexing to the Inquisition is what happened to the Necron fleet. They simply disappeared. Um, do we know what happened to them? <sighs> Frustratingly, no. I unfortunately have a clue where they went. My guess, if I had to venture one, was Oricon the Diviner used his skill with time manipulation and determined that if they didn't help humanity here, their reawakening empire would never become a thing. Oh, Oh, really? That's interesting. Really? That's my best bet. Of course, it could also be the High Council thought that they had to do something, or Emotech saw an opportunity to snag a Blackstone fortress and took it. Uh, honestly, brother, there are there could be a lot of reasons why the Necrons showed up when they did, which would give answers of where they went. Irritatingly, <laughs> I don't have a definite answer, simply a ninja kid guess.
0: Mm, fair enough. Yeah.
1: Regardless of where the Necrons went, with the retreat of. The arch-enemies orbital support. The imperial defenders on the service of Cadia rallied from their defeats to eliminate the forces of chaos who stood against them and reclaimed the sacred soil of the fortress world for the emperor. For a time. Indeed, brother.
0: Abaddon was far from finished. He had been planning this part of his long war for 10,000 years. He would not be denied. Unfortunately, the victory above Cadia's space was short-lived. Like a spear cast from the depths of the Eye of Terror, the Black Fleet flew true for Cadia, the chief bastion of resistance remaining within the Cadian Gate. The Black Fleet's outriders were but fodder to shield the grim-powered warships that came behind, interplanetary haulers and cargo holds. They were barely armed, but their crews possessed all the fiery zeal of recent converts to the way of unbelief. Beyond this swarm came score upon score of blasphemous war vessels, the Ebon cruisers of the Despoiler's own court, plague ships, their lumpen holes, belching vile fluids into the void with every course correction, the cable ships of the Thousand Suns, and the blood-red Leviathans of the world leaders, and amongst them vessels of malefic legend, the violent Terminus Est, the Fortress of Agony, and the ominous bulk of the Will of Eternity last known survivor of the Blackstone Fortresses of the Gothic Sector. Few under Abaddon's command knew his true purpose in grinding Cadia beneath his heel. Most gave it little thought. For the dark prophets of the word-bearers and their teeming disciples, this was destiny, foretold by the Chaos Gods long ago. For the Night Lords and their ilk, this was the hour in which terror would reign. For the Alpha Legion, well... Who knows what they were really actually
1: after? (sighs) I am Alpharius! Yeah, that's my point exactly.
0: I will mention whatever the Alpha Legion did, it didn't seem to help out either side all that much. just seems... strange. Regardless, other warlords came to spread the blessings of their gods, to forge their own legends, or to slake 10,000 standard years of hatred in the blood of the Imperium's defenders. Others still had no lucid motivations. The madness of war was upon them, and they would fight until its fury was spent. All who sought to stall the onslaught's passage paid with lives and their souls. The remnants of the battle fleets, Corona and Scarus, themselves bloodied during the first wave of the 13th Black Crusade, met the outliers of the, the Spoiler's fleet in the outer orbit of Vigilantium. Their crews fought to the last. Mantras of faith upon their lips, even as atomic fire of breached plasma reactors consumed them. Still, Abaddon swept on. As the first Chaos Cruisers entered the Iron Graveyard, the drifting remains of Acadian Sector Fleet lost during the very first Black Crusade, their rimward flank evaporated beneath sustained Nova cannon fire. Admiral Dostov had concealed the surviving Victory class battleships and his battle group amidst the lifeless wrecks, and they now sought retribution for their comrades' loss in Vigilantum. Had Valor alone been enough to light the forges of triumph, Destoff would have smithed a mighty blade in that hour. But Abaddon could have suffered tenfold the losses, just have inflicted before it even sparked his notice. Fresh bones soon littered the iron graveyard, and still Abaddon swept on. On Cadia, the revelation that Abaddon yet had a Blackstone fortress at his command threw Creed and his fellow Imperial commanders into a flurry of activity. The Blackstone alone possessed sufficient firepower to cleave Cadia's crippled orbital defenses and then scour all traces of life from the world itself. One hope remained. From the very moment Abaddon had revealed the Blackstone's true potential back in the days of the Gothic War, nearly a thousand standard years before, the cult mechanicus had labored to counter the warp beam's fury. Conventional defenses alone were of little use. Neither shield nor armor could abate the raw, unmaking energies of the immaterium itself. Necessity being the whip crack behind the invention. A particular solution was found. By amalgamating the sciences of the Void Shield and the Geller Field, it was possible to emit an energy canopy to destabilize and dissipate the warp beam projected by the Blackstone Fortress. Cadia's null array had been completed shortly before the first onset of the 13th Black Crusade. Unfortunately, none of the projection emplacements had survived the siege intact. Thus far, Creed had focused his reconstruction efforts on restoring the defenses necessary to fight a conventional war. With word of the Will of Eternity's approach, This now changed. Every adept of the machine god on Cadia was tasked with breathing new life into the null array. Bastions and emplacements, painstakingly restored to function, were stripped anew. Tech priests and engine seers labored without rest, passing far beyond natural tolerances as they strove to achieve the impossible. By the time Abaddon's fleet was within a solar day of orbit, it was clear that these efforts would not be enough. Cadia was rich in flesh and bone, in faith and even in determination. But time? Time had run out. Magos Klarn dourly reported that even at best projections, Kassir Krav's null ray could not be coerced even to partial effectiveness. More time was needed, and there was just simply none. It was then that Sven Bloodhowl of the Space Wolves proposed a solution, or at least the hope of one. His battle barge, the Firemane's fang, was the sole motive vessel left in orbit around Cadia, his fire howlers would take the ship into the heart of Abaddon's fleet, board the will of eternity, and do what they could to slow its progress. Such was the counsel of desperation, but in dark times, desperation must be embraced and transmuted into strength. Thus, Bloodhell's great company did not undertake this mission alone. All told, near 200 battle brothers of the Adeptus Astartes embarked on the fireman's fang, Only 58 hailed from Sven's own brotherhood. Others came from companies that had been torn asunder during the initial invasion of Cadia. Lone battle brothers and shattered squads determined to strike one last blow against the despoilers' forces and claim revenge for their fallen brothers. So too went the survivors of the Cadian 13th Regiment, accompanied by a full maniple of Martian Skitari. The garrison of Kassar Craft cheered as the bright star of Fireman's fang broke orbit. But contact was lost almost immediately, and the cheers faded soon after. Creed's mantra of Cadia Stands echoed along the redoubts and bastions of Cadia. Few embraced it at first, though all dissenters were careful to avoid voicing their doubts. Cadia had already severed Abaddon's left hand. Perhaps the right would be similarly crushed. But even Valor needed firm ground on which to stand, and the will of Eternity had the power to strip that away. Creed knew the mood of his soldiers, for their doubts were also his. Inactivity gnawed at him, so he combated that with action. As the projected hour grew steadily closer, Creed remained on the move, touring the defense's of Acadia, greeting his officers with firm handshakes and clear eyes, addressing the assembled ranks of veterans and initiates alike with confidence that could have moved mountains, had he only set it to that purpose that confidence billowed in all who heard his words, holding back the fears each man and woman felt. Cadia stands. The words took on new meaning in Creed's wake. Cadia would stand for the Emperor, but it would also stand for Ursacar E. Creed. None could have guessed that Creed's fears were every ounce as heavy as their own, perhaps even more so. For with each passing solar hour, he grew ever more convinced that the light of the Emperor no longer touched upon the Cadian Gate that the father of mankind had abandoned them all to the darkness. Creed chided himself for his doubts, reminded himself that such thoughts were those of the apostate, the heretic. Yet still the doubts remained, hidden from all, or almost so. Though the two never spoke of it, jarn Kell knew the darkness gathering in Creed's mind, but he kept that secret, as he had kept many others over the years. The Vangon of Abaddon's fleet arrived at dawn. Greeted by salvo fire and defiance, the crippled warships in orbit leveled their last fury against the Black Fleet. Joined in wrath by the planetary batteries Creed had worked so hard to restore. Plasma drives flamed and went dark, delivering traitor vessels into the merciless embrace, Acadia's gravity well. The sky blazed with pinpricks of fire, each marking the creation of another martyr or heretic's long overdue demise. But this was merely the forerunner, the prologue. As the last Acadia's hobbled fleet blazed into darkness, a new moon appeared in the sky. An eight-pointed star of abyssal stone, broken only by the angry red glare of a single Cyclopean eye. All of Acadia held its breath. The will of eternity had come at the appointed hour. Blood hell had failed. His sacrifice and that of his battle brothers had been for nothing. The eye blazed. A beam of searing light leapt planetward and dispersed amongst the clouds. Cheers erupted across Kassar Craft. none more heartfelt than those of its Lord Castellan. Only Magos Klarn remained silent. He'd personally inspected the Kassar Kraft's project grid less than a solar hour before, only to find his adept slain, an alien technology interwoven with the array's circuits, technology that goaded the troubled machine spirits to troubled efficiency making that one array capable of shielding all of Cadia. The mystery rankled Clarn, who even without the deaths of his acolytes would have distrusted any binary miracle that did not arise from his own hands. But as the cheers faded and the skies blackened with traitor dropships, he tore his attention back to the breaking storm. The
1: mystery would have to wait. The final siege of Cadia had begun. Abaddon started his invasion at Casarcraf, where the Imperial forces were quickly overwhelmed, thanks in a large part to the traitor idens of the Legio Vulcanum, which nonetheless took heavy losses. Soon after, Khasr-Jark fell as well, and Abaddon set his sights on the planetary shield generator. The demon prince Ercanthos was chosen by Abaddon to lead the invasion attempted to capture the planetary shield generator in the Battle of the Lysian Fields. Ultimately, after slaying both Canisus, Eleanor, and Genevieve, Ercanthos was able to capture Cadia's last remaining shield generator complex. However, thanks to the sudden appearance of Saint Celestine leading Lost Sisters of Battle Reinforcements, Creed was able to lead a successful counterattack. Celestine summoned Genevieve and Eleanor back from the dead, and together they were able to defeat Ercanthos Just as the Phalanx appeared over Cadia, decimating the Well of Eternity and the Black Legion fleet, the Well of Eternity was ultimately destroyed by the Phalanx after its shields were disabled by Sven Bloodhowl's borders. The destruction of the vessel forced the Black Legion fleet to withdraw as an angry Abaddon vowed to lead the next assault himself. With some breathing room, the Imperial forces were able to regroup and receive some reinforcements from the Imperial Fists and Legion of the Damned Forces.
0: Oh, they do actually show
1: up. Yep. Ah. From the Phalanx, Crimson Fists under Rui Tresito House Terranus and Belisarius calls fleet of Skitari. <laughs> you
0: know, I was actually wondering when Belisarius Call would show up. Um, h-
1: how how did he get Cadia, by the way? That is an interesting question, and even more intriguing story. Unfortunately, we do not have time to go through it. Perhaps a small fox at a future date? Hmm, perhaps. Maybe when we talk about the uh, Adeptus Mechanicus. Anyways, during the subsequent War Council, Call was able to inform the Imperial High Command of Abaddon's intentions to destroy the pylons and cause the warp to advance across the materium. After the meeting, Paul was approached by Trazene, the Infinite, and, after some convincing, reluctantly accepted the help of the Necron Lord, who pledged to halt the spread of chaos Across the galaxy by maintaining the pylons. Colin Trazine began to modify pylons in tunnels beneath Cadia as Abaddon began his assault. Now, this story I
0: actually have done as a short box. And if you wish to check it out, click on Trazine the
1: Infinite. Thief or Savior? Oh, one of my favorites, actually. (laughs) Yeah. But we must press on to Abaddon's next move. Of course. During the next major chaos assault, the traitor forces experienced heavy resistance in the face of Celestine and her sisters. Meanwhile, Abaddon had sworn to crush Cadia's last resistance himself, and now came to do so. He did not enter the maelstrom of battle alone. The bringers of despair, their trophy racks thick with heads of Cadian officers, Teleported into the heart of Creed's command sky shield. Dozens perished in bloody moments, ripped apart by the fury of the Black Legion's finest warriors. Only Creed survived, shoved aboard Valkyrie at Jaron Kell's hand. The killer sergeant's last act of fealty in a lifetime of unflinching service to his friend and commander. The bolt shell struck a hammer blow against Sergeant Jaren Kell's knee, shredding flesh and mingling bone. He fell, agony clawing at his thoughts. Still, he found the strength to push Creed aboard the Wayne assault carrier. Go! Go! Valkyrie's pilot needed no further encouragement. Engines howling, it sped skyward, bearing the Lord Castellan of Cadia to safety, or whatever illusion of it remained on the Elysian Fields. Only then did Kell afford himself the luxury of pain. Bracing the foot of the Eighth Cadian Standard against the ground, he fell to his remaining knee. His vision clouded, dark shapes loomed over him, monstrous silhouettes edged with blood-spattered gold. A black gauntlet closed around Kell's throat, hoisting him up like a broken doll Coal, black eyes stared from a pallid face. The Despoiler, Kell felt no fear. He was dead already. What more could even Abaddon the traitor do to him? Only faith mattered now. Faith and honor. Such dedication to so unworthy a cause. The Despoiler rumbled. Pitiful. With his last strength, Kell hocked a goblet of bloody phlegm at his captor. Cadia stands. Abaddon snorted, his lip curling in sardonic disgust.
0: <laughs>
1: I don't think so. Last sound Kell ever heard was the crack of his own shattering spine. With the eighth Cadian's command scattered or slain, and the twenty-first in full retreat, the southern front collapsed. Dark praises on their lips, the Chosen of Abaddon, overran the few remaining trenches held by the 21st Cadian and rampaged east across the Lysian Fields. Amalric and Garadon planted their banners full in the Black Legion's path, ceramic ceramite wall of black and gold, to serve as a breakwater against the tide. Had valor alone been the measure of victory, the Lysian Fields would have been won that day. But the sons of Dorne were too few, and the Black Legion many. Their redoubt became an island swallowed by a sea of madness, and the traitors swept on. Everon's simultaneous advance against the tunnels beneath Cadia's surface were confounded when Trazine appeared with the Tesseract labyrinth that disgorged a large number of last imperial forces collected over a millennia, including Inquisitor GriffX and retinue, Horus Horace Haresier Ultramarines, Vostroyans, Tanth Imperial Guard, and salamanders. However, these forces are overwhelmed by a newly summoned horde of demons. The tide of the battle in the tunnels began to swing again when Space Wolves' reinforcements, including Wolfen, arrived while Celestine and her twin guardians assailed Abaddon directly. It was then that the pylons began to activate. Trezine and Call's modifications had been successful. The activation caused Celestine and the Legion of the damned to become depowered, demons and psyker combatants to lose their power and causing the immaterium to recede, even tricking the terror itself. Soon, only those without warp modifications are still standing. It is in this setting that the traitorous Stardays of the Black Legion gained the advantage. Just as Abaddon was able to finish the weakened Celestine, he was stopped by Inquisitor Grafax who led a counterattack of Cadian and Vostroyans. Creed himself was able to arrive in the fray, briefly battling Abaddon himself and losing an arm in the process. Just as Abaddon was about to finish his hated adversary Creed, Celestine was able to get back on her feet and impale the Chaos Warmaster with her sword.
0: As the vengeful spirits teleport anchors engaged, Abaddon's quirky sense of honor was seen as he nodded respectfully to the defenders of Cadia before he teleported out. Like I mentioned before about Abaddon, he has no sense of morality. But he does have a respect for strength. And he does honor that. Although the defenders had defeated him in this battle, they had already lost. They just didn't know yet. But they had also won. He had sought to break Cadia's spirit, sending the vanquished souls of its garrison screaming into the warp. He had not done so. When he materialized on the deck of the vengeful spirit, a small smile crept upon his face. With a wince of pain, he growled to himself. Finally, an enemy worth killing. (laughs) Meanwhile, back on Cadia, Creed pulled angrily away from the medic, attempting to treat his hand. Blinking away after images as the implication hammered home. I set this world's fate in motion before I even made planetfall. Abaddon had said. The Lord Castellan wished he could believe the words were mere bravado, but his heavy heart knew otherwise. Following the sudden cessation, Archmagos Call's first thought was to recheck the pylon nodal grid's function. Finding it satisfactory, he secured from war mode and took inventory of his remaining forces. Trazine slipped the Tesseract Labyrinth beneath his cloak and regretfully allowed that Ezekiel Abaddon would not grace his collection. At least, not this day. As for Celestine, the living saint stared upward, through the ruined cavern roof, and into the starlit skies above, her manner that of one who already knew what would happen next. On the surface, the thunder hawks of the crimson slaughter and warped dropships of the traitor legions braved the imperial defenders' fire, retrieving whatever dark brothers and demon engines they could. Tor Garadon rallied what remained of the Imperial Fists on Cadia. Scarce a score of battle brothers from the third company still fought. Some through horrendous wounds. Of the first company, only Sergeant Furin remained. Garadon was struck by the irony. The third had only been on Phalanx because they had been considered too inexperienced to join the chapter's crusade of vengeance. Those who remained had nothing more to prove, assuming they survived what was next to come. By contrast, Marshal Almarek's Black Templars harried the retreating traitors, slaughtering the crew of one dropship before they could take flight, and bringing another two down with missile fire. Even discounting Almarek's efforts, not all the Black Legion arrived safely at their destination. Caught in the turbulent currents of the warp, scores were torn apart or simply scattered as molecule dust across Cadia's atmosphere. Storming to the Bridge of the Vengeful Spirit... Abaddon nodded the silent order that sounded the knell of Cadian's doom. With a single push of a button, Cadia's fate was sealed. Deep within the will of Eternity's debris cloud, Warpsmiths heard Abaddon's order. All across the largest fragment of debris, a mass of ancient stone the size of a small moon, banks of plasma drives roared into life. The Blackstone Fortress corpse shuddered as engines fought to overcome the inertia of orbit. Then... Slowly at first, but with ever-increasing velocity, the ungainly missile broke orbit and roared planetwards. Across the Black Fleet, plasma drives blazed as soon as the last dropships were aboard, pulling away from atmosphere at whatever speed their captains could urge. As the vengeful spirit led the exodus, Abaddon beheld the blue-gray orb of Cadia one last time and sighed in satisfaction. For 10,000 standard years, This world had been as much his foe as the warriors that garrisoned its fortresses. But nothing defied the will of Chaos forever. Nothing defied his will forever. Loosing a peal of dark laughter, the despoiler decanted a draught of bulk wine into a chalice fashioned from the skull of Fabius Bile's clone of Horus and toasted the death of one ancient foe with the remains of another. After ten thousand years... All of his planning, all of his fighting, every scrap of his being was soon able to feel the sweet sensation that he desired most of all. Victory. Aboard the Phalanx, Commodore Trevu at last realized the Chaos Cruiser's purpose within the debris cloud and ordered the battle station's batteries to engage the improvised missile. But in death, the Blackstone Fortress resisted the Phalanx fire as it failed to do in life. A section of the ramshackle drivetrain went dark beneath the bombardment, but by then, Cadia's gluttonous gravity well had seized the plunging black stone. All Trevu could do was broadcast a warning to those on the planet's surface and watch in horror. Down the black stone wreckage plunged, its outer edge blazing red with atmospheric friction, but the will of eternity had been forged to withstand fiercer fires than any that nature could provide. Though the last of the Warpsmiths perished, their hab-shelters burned away by Cadia's wrath, the main body plunged on, a bolt of flaming brimstone cast from Abaddon's dark hand. All upon the planet's surface heard the Blackstone coming. Its soul-wrenching onset screeched through the quickening winds, its presence already disrupting the complex web of thermals and weather patterns across the belingered planet. On the continent of Cadia Tertius, Half a world away from the slaughter of the Elysian Fields, the defenders of scattered Imperial garrisons deemed too insignificant for Abaddon's attention beheld the Blackstone's onset as a pinprick, a fire amidst shrinking skies. At first, it was taken as a void ship's reactor going critical in outer orbit. But as the moments ticked past, the fireball became larger. And larger, a massive Xenos made asteroid plunging ever towards the planet's surface, the gravity of the world eagerly pulling the weight towards its destruction. Winds howling about it, the artificial meteor impacted Cadia. Cadia shuddered, impossible forces jarring it loose of age old orbit. The survivors cling to the ruined fortresses of Cadia Tertoris, barely had time to scream. Those beneath the vast impact site perished first. Superheated wind roared in their ears before it seared flesh from bone and reduced bone to scattered ash. The Blackstone Fortress's remnant struck, gouging a crater hundreds of miles in breadth. Mountains crumbled into dust, seas vanished into plumes of scalding steam. Continental plates rumbled and groaned as they shifted beneath titanic forces not seen since Cadia first cooled from the starstuff of the galactic void. The tremors spread, tidal waves, and screamed particular winds their heralds. Coastal bastions that had survived bombardment and siege drowned beneath the unnatural tide, ripped from their foundations, and dragged beneath squalling seas. The island of Ranstorm vanished entirely, Its shell-ravaged landing fields drowned beneath the waves. A thousand miles inland on the continent Acadia Secondus, the enduring spires of Kassar Vark at last fell, smashed apart by waters of the Cacadutus Sea as the tidal shelves buckled. At the Elysian Fields, half a world away from the impact site, they heard the roar of the winds and saw the dark onrushing particle clouds that blocked out the sun. The canny sought what cover they could amongst the pylons, and ruined war machines. The slow-witted perished, torn apart by the vaporizing bones of Cadia. The prayers of the battle sisters and chaos cultists alike were snatched away by the planet's dying breath, unheard by any deity or saint. In the nodal cavern, the ceiling cracked, whiter yet, raining boulders down on Creed's bloody victors. The winds grew, hurling tanks across the pylon fields, crushing those who had sought shelter beneath them. Ancient pylons gave up their grasp on the bedrock, toppling like petrified trees. The pylon field's beam of dark light flickered as the monoliths fell. The retreat of the immaterium faltered, and then slowly reversed. The storm raged for solar minutes that seemed eternities, and then fell away into hurricane winds. They blew over a world forever altered. The continent of Cadia Tertarus was gone, completely obliterated by fire and drowned beneath howling seas. The Crane Fault, bane of Cadia Tertoris since the Age of Strife, had ruptured one last fateful time and the planetary crust split apart. Cadia Primus was half-drowned. Its forested mountainsides, now isolated islands scattered across a new ocean. Cadia Secundus lay wreathed in fire, its continental plates sinking as the pressure of their neighbors forced them steadily inwards. None of it mattered. Cadia was already dead. But even then, the worst was yet to come. After the aftershocks of the impact rippled through the dying rock, more pylons shattered against the dust-strewn tundra. Not just at the Elysian fields, but at the lesser sites of Kassarn, Trosk, and Vorg. As the pylons fell, the nodal web stuttered, and then withered entirely. The dark light beam, call's spear into the heart of the Eye of Terror, flickered once more, and then died. A new sound pealed through the howling winds. The dark laughter of gods too long denied their prize. The crimson maelstrom of the Eye of Terror pulsed anew, and reached out to embrace sundered Katia. Cal felt the nodal grid pull apart, the remaining pylons no match for the pressure of the resurgent immaterium. Through his third consciousness, he dimly acknowledged the screams and the grinding of tortured rock. Then he devoted all of his attention to the task at hand. The archmage of Secondary Consciousness translated the alien whisper of the pylons to a static-filled flow of lingua technis. Gaps appeared in the binary equation. Untranslatable fragments flowed with green fire. They had not been there before. Their presence confirmed the growing instability of the grid. No, he would not fail. Not after coming so close. As calls Tartary and mine approximated translations for the unfamiliar code, his primary conscious tightened his grip, as if to hold together the grid by will alone. His optics scoured the shuttered cavern for any trace of Trezine, but the Necron, there was no sign. Curse him! and curse Walker too, for setting him on this course. Failure changed nothing. Worse, it had jeopardized the pact, the 10,000-standard-year Gaius, now thrown into jeopardy by perfidious Zeno's. Rage overwhelmed the logic calculations of Kahl's trifold mind, passionless composure, wilting beneath the realization of his folly. The pylons were not the Omnissiah's work, and yet, blinded by pride, he had sought to bind them to holy purpose. He had erred, been seduced from the precepts of Mars by vanglory. Skeins of binary code slipped into dust beneath Kahl's grip. Equations breathed through his mind, more alien now than recognizable. He felt the nodal grid convulse, the last binding failings away as critical pylons fell. A dark, cancerous presence flooded across Cadia's surface, rapacious, unstoppable. As the last binary skeins slipped free of his grip, Call finally recognized his folly. The door he had sought to close forever had swung open wider than before. Trifold mind trembled, he disengaged from the dying grid. Cadia is lost, he breathed. Dark laughter echoed across the skies, still choked with particular matter. And yet, in that darkest hour, hope was reborn. For the restoration of the Immaterium saw also the renewed Ascension, a Celestine and her Gemini Superia. The light of the Emperor restored, she led the survivors out of the cavern and into the wasteland of the Elysian Fields. None recognized the sight they beheld. Magma slogged its sluggish path amidst the fallen pylons, consuming the bodies of the dead and their armaments of war. Here and there across the plains, sporadic fire rang out as the first demons clawed their way onto the war-torn fields. As the scant survivors of the Elysian Fields converged, drawn like flare moths to the Celestians' light, the Cadian's 8th Regiment once again looked to Creed for leadership. For the first time since he joined the White Shields so many standard years ago, none was forthcoming. The Lord Castellan looked upon the ruin of his world. His Cadia and knew only despair. Recognizing that Creed's mind now roamed distant fields, and determined not to allow authority to fall into Celestine's dubious hands, Greyfax seized command. Using what remained of the planetary Voxnet, she issued the evacuation orders. Cadia had fallen. Even if it endured the physical trauma of the Blackstone Collision, the warp would soon claim it. Victory in the Imperium's name was worth the sacrifice of thousands, of millions, but the Inquisitor knew no victory could be held here on Cadia. Thus began the last exodus of Cadia. From across the globe they came, in landing craft and transport vessels barely fit to fly. Plasma drives burning hard for the safety of the phalanx, and the ragtag fleet sheltering in its shadow. Not all came safely to their destination, though. The Cadian 27th Regiment perished to the last man as the Tetrarch Heavy Lander's pilot succumbed to warp madness and plowed the limping behemoth into the remains of the Trados Mountains. Helldrakes and Harbringers, operating far from the trailing edge of the Black Fleet, risked the savage winds to spill more blood for the Dark Gods. Dogfights unfolded amongst the swirling dust storms as the last of the Imperial Fist Stormhawk Interceptors sought to clear the skies. They were far too few to keep the foe contained, and the evacuation fields of Elysian became shell-ridden mausoleums. At the Elysian fields, the evacuation became a fighting retreat, every transport a target for soul-hungry demons. In the north, Celestine's Adeptus Sorartus slowly gave ground, but at a high cost to their foes. To the south, the tale was the same. The demons there were held by the ragged line of guardsmen, buttressed on either side by Geradin's Imperial fists and the Black Templars of the Crusade. But despite their heroicism, it soon became clear to Grayfax the evacuation fields would soon be overrun. Flight-worthy voidcraft were too few, and growing scarcer with each passing moment. Some would have to be sacrificed for the rest to escape. It was then that Creed at last roused himself from despair. The Lord Castilian's own would hold Cadia, One last time, he decreed. They would buy the time needed with an offering of blood and bone. Orders were issued, their bleak consequence plain to all who heard, but the Cadian 8th Regiment did not blanch at the duty placed before them. There was not one amongst them who did not feel the cold hand of fear, but none broke ranks or attempted desertion. Creed was Cadia, but more than that, he was of the 8th. He had led the regiment safely through fire and death, where others had been consumed. There was not one amongst their rank who did not owe the Lord Castellan their lives, and they all accepted that the debt was finally due. As the last imperial transport soared into the hellish skies, the Eighth fought and died amongst the ruins of their world. The Sisters of Our Martyred Lady and Marshal Almerich's Black Templars were the last to depart their bloodied survivors crowding their transports sent from the Iron Revenant to reclaim the Knights of the House Tyrannus. Greyfax departed with them, her suspicious eye ever upon Celestine. But as the landing thrusters flared, the Inquisition thought she heard a bellowing cry. Clear and proud over the howling winds and the roar of cannons. It was a deep voice, bowed by the horrors of war, but not broken. Defiant to the last the STANDS! Creed waved his maimed hand in the air, signaling his troops bellowing to be heard over the fury of the wind. Fall back! Fall back! With a shudder, the Cadian line shrank towards the evacuation fields. The winds rose, stirring the dust storm to new heights. Suddenly, Creed was alone. A flame-chased shadow passed overhead. The cog-toothed skull of the Adeptus Mechanicus emblazoned on its flanks. Lazfire lanced from its prow, provoking demonic screams from deeper within the storm dust. Then engines roared and the transports thundered skyward. The last transport. Cadia was now a little more than a graveyard. Haunted by the stubborn and the dead. Creed stumbled. Despite the medic's valiant labors, his wounds still bled. He felt his strength ebbing as his lifeblood seeped into the greatcoat's fabric. One last effort. Then he'd rest. One last effort. The storm parted. Not before a demon, but a metal giant scaled cloak. The wind snatched away a creed's hurried shot. Light glittered upon the figure's upraised palm. Iridescent polygons billowing in a hypnotic dance. Versacar e creed The giant's words slammed down like tombstones. This need not be your end. Eternity awaits.
1: The giant's laughter followed Creed into darkness. Well, folks, that's about it. With Cadia's destruction, Abaddon finally got the victory that he needed and is now in the second phase of his plan, marching on Terra. Quite right, Uxen.
0: Yeah, There is a very important piece to the 13th and its final stages that we won't be covering here because, well,
1: we've already covered it. That's right, brother. The end of the 13th Black Crusade is the resurrection of one Rabouti Gilman on the crack. If you want the full details on that, check it out on our Vox, the Ultramar campaign. Yep, (laughs) and it's a good one.
0: Now, before we go, I would just like to give a little recap on the
1: past year. And I have to admit, it's been a pretty good one. Indeed. When we started with the Necrons, we honestly thought this would be more therapeutic for us, rather than anyone actually listening. <laughs> Quite right, Yuxin. If I recall right, it was either this, or a strangling competition. Yes. Well, we have been pleasantly surprised at how many of you guys enjoy our stuff. We should reach 4,000 watch hours on YouTube by the end of next month, and perhaps reach 1,000 subscribers by the end of February. Indeed. And for our
0: podcast listeners, we have reached 8,200 plays and 325 regular listeners. For something fun to do to keep the dreary days of space at bay, this has been way more successful than either of us anticipated. For that, you have our
1: deepest thanks. Yes, thank you, kind listeners, for tuning in to us every week and listening to our Chronicles of Warhammer 40K. But there is more to come. Next month, we will be covering the space commune, more commonly known as the Tau. And then, the next two months, we will go over the worst debacle in the Empire of Man, as seen the Horus Heresy.
0: Can't wait, Yuxin. If you enjoyed our boxes and haven't already done so, please feel free to subscribe, comment, follow, and like. And if you really like our stuff, please join our membership squad on our YouTube channel. Tales of Ashraka. With your support, we can continue to build and grow our boxes as well as some cool extra stuff for you guys to join. Once again, we need the support of you, our dear listeners, so we can continue to make a show that is successful that we all enjoy. We will also be opening up a shop for you guys so you can get some cool stuff. But until then, we need support in the form of members. If you're
1: listening on Spotify, don't worry. You can help as well. That's right, Zektar. If you click the support podcast button on any of the descriptions on Spotify, you can donate to our success, too. Well, I think that's enough grandstanding for us today.
0: I just want to say Happy New Year's, folks. And as always. Until
1: next time, this is Ekthar. And Euxen. Signing off.